If you'll open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, we'll continue where we left off the last time in our study in this book. We'll be beginning our reading today at verse 13. Paul, remember, has been in Berea. Before that, Thessalonica. Before that, Philippi. Those are the first three cities in Europe that he and his missionary team had been able to minister, and it was a great ministry that they had begun there. Many people were getting saved, but there was, as always, much opposition. We saw most of that opposition came from Jews, but not always. Some Gentiles were offended by what he had to say as well. But there was always opposition in each of those communities where he had visited. In Philippi, he had to leave because he had been in jail the night before and the magistrates finally insisted on his leaving the city and he did so with his team, perhaps leaving only Luke behind. When he got to Thessalonica, again he met with opposition, this time from the Jews. It got to the point where it was so heated that they snuck him out of town secretly at night and went on his way from there to Berea. It was in Berea that, again, he taught the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And the Bible tells us that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. The reason? Because they actually heard Paul, listened to what he had to say, and then went home and actually looked into the Word of God, read the Scriptures for themselves to see what Paul was saying was in line with what the Word of God indeed did say. They were very careful to make sure that what they were hearing was truth. And they're set apart in the Word of God as an example to all of us. And oftentimes you'll hear people say, Be a Berean. And that simply means... Get into the Word and see if what you are hearing in the pulpit or on the radio or in the Internet, wherever you happen to be, listening to what is purported to be the Word of God, check it out against what the Word of God says. Be Bereans. Well, he went from Berea to the next stop, perhaps by sea, going from Berea first to the east coast of Macedonia and taking ship from there to the city of Athens, the great city of Athens, Greece, Macedonia. It's actually in Achaia, the southern portion of Greece in that day. It had long before lost its glory, but it once was the glory of the Macedonian Empire. Philip of Macedonia, the father of Alexander the Great. Athens was the home of many, many great men who were well-known throughout the world. Their philosophical ideas presented from Athens were world-renowned. Men like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. You've heard of the Pythagorean theorem, Archimedes' principle. Much knowledge, much Greatness 
from the world's perspective, came from that one city of Athens. But by now, 300 years later, it had been a city in decay. And the only thing that Athens had still going for them is the fact that it was considered one of the best places for education in the world. Kind of like Oxford in England or some of the other famous colleges throughout Europe. Certainly not like Harvard and Yale today, but that's another story. We pick up again in our study as he's now leaving Berea. Acts chapter 17, verse 12. Therefore many of them believed, and not only just a few of the Greeks, but prominent women as well. That's where we left off. Now in verse 13 it says, But when the Jews from Thessalonica, notice where the source of opposition is here coming, at Berea, not the Jews in Berea, because they were willing to at least take a look at what the Scriptures said. But the Jews from Thessalonica who wanted Paul to be eliminated, they traveled the several miles down to Berea when they found out that he was there teaching the Berean church. And it says the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, and they came there also to stir up the crowds. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea. They were after Paul. He was a leader of this group that was teaching things that the Jews did not want others to hear. If they could eliminate him, his followers would flee, they thought. So, apparently, Silas and Timothy felt somewhat safe by staying behind. But Paul needed to go. And so he did. He was accompanied by a group of believers that had come to know Christ during his short time in Berea. And it says in verse 15, So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. And then receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So his escorts, who had brought him down from Berea to Athens, are now told by Paul, Go back to Berea, tell Timothy and Silas to come down to Athens. I need to see them here to help me in the ministry in this new community that I am now in. So now Paul is having to wait for that message to arrive in Berea and for Timothy and Silas to come. As we find out later in the Scripture, they didn't come as soon as Paul had hoped. And there was great concern on Paul's behalf as to what was happening with them. But that comes later on in the Scriptures as we will read it as We continue through the book of Acts. But here, Paul is now in Athens. And this is where we want to land this morning in our study in God's Word. It says in verse 16, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So apparently Paul has been ministering in Athens now, in the synagogues, where there are both Jew and Gentiles gathering together, as had been his custom. He went to the synagogues first, but he was also speaking to anyone who would hear in the agora, the marketplace, a public area where people would gather. There would be much merchandise being sold in the marketplace, but it was more a place where people could Come and talk about things. And that was what Athens was mostly known for at the time. They loved to talk about things. It tells us in verse 18 
Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, I want you to know, first of, hand, uh, first of all, that there are many who think Paul failed in Athens. I'm not one of those who think that. And I use this verse in my own mind to show to me, I hope it's understanding, it's your understanding as well, that Paul did indeed preach Jesus in Athens. And apparently there were people hearing and coming to Christ, both Jew and Gentile alike, from the synagogue and from the marketplace. But he's now entering into a kind of a confrontation with these philosophers. And they recognize that Jesus had been preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, they're philosophers. They have philosophical concepts about how things happened in the world. And they are well known, but they are kind of in opposition with one another because the Epicureans thought one thing about the state of mankind and the Stoics thought a completely different thing about the state of mankind. So I want to explain to you what those differences are, but it's very difficult for me to put those words into a, a way that could be understood. So I'm going to rely on the writing of a very famous theologian whose name was William Barclay. He was a Scottish theologian back in the early 1900s. And he said this with regard to the Epicureans. They believed that everything happened by chance. They believed that death was the end of all. There was no afterlife. They believed that the gods were remote from the world and did not care. So although there was nothing after death, and one of their famous lines would have been something like what Isaiah wrote in one of his prophetic statements about the Jews who thought that God had left them. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's the mindset of the Epicureans. I always thought that it was a Greek quote that was given with regard to that phrase that I just mentioned. But it's not. It's from Isaiah. Several hundred years before, the Greeks were in power. But this is what they believed. Fourthly, they believed that pleasure was the chief end of man. Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. It's all about being satisfied. Pleasure was a supreme objective to the Epicureans. And we're not talking about sexual pleasure. We're talking about pleasure that results in no pain, no sorrow. They really thought that there was a way to accomplish that kind of a life. A life of total pleasure and satisfaction. And again, Barclay is saying they did not mean fleshly and material pleasure, for the highest pleasure was that which brought no pain in his train. So that's Barclay's understanding of the Epicurean thought. And I think he's very accurately presented here the various things, there are five of those points that we just made, that really give uh, us a feel for what the Epicureans thought, what 
made them what they were. But the Stoics, again, were completely different. In their mind's eye, there were a lot of different things that they thought were completely irrelevant that the Epicureans believed. So they had their own set of philosophies, and they included these. They believed that everything was God. Everything was God. God is not only out there somewhere. God is in everything. There's a part of God in everything. Material and spirit were separated things, but they believed that there was some spirit in everything material. So they believed that everything was God, and God was a fiery spirit. That spirit grew dull in matter, but it was in everything. This is Barclay saying these things. And he says, what gave men life was that a little spark of that spirit dwelt in them, and when they died, it returned to God. Secondly, they believed that everything that happened was the will of God and therefore must be accepted without resentment. Hey, that's what I believe, by the way. Everything that happens to us, it happens because God allows it. So in that same sense, we can agree with the Stoics, but that's the only point of reference that I think we should even consider. Thirdly, they believed that every so often, the world disintegrated into a conflagration and started all over again on the same cycle of events. Now, they might have been thinking along the lines of the Noah flood. And that flood, by the way, happened as a worldwide event. And it is recorded in almost every culture. Don't you think for a moment that God's word is in error with regard to the flooding of the world. There are those who would say the flood was just localized. It was all over the world. That's what the Word of God says. And I won't dispute what the Word of God says. We'll get into that for a little bit in a minute. So those are the two separate theologies, if you will, of the religious people in Greece. The Stoics and the Epicureans. They're the ones that now confront Paul. They want to know more about what Paul is teaching the common people around them. They are the intellectuals. They are the ones who would be likely to have a real meaningful discussion with any intellectual that comes their way. They saw some of that in Paul, and they wanted to invite Paul to a very special place within the city of Athens where they could get together and communicate with one another in an intellectual setting. So it tells us in verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. I'll try to say that word correctly. The Areopagus. And saying, may we know what this new doctrine is which you speak. He's being invited to come to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was a really, really amazing place. The Latin gives us the name that most of us are familiar with if you know anything about Greek history, Mars Hill. It's a high place that the city of Athens was built around. It's where the Parthenon, or remains of the Parthenon, are today. The Areopagus was a place where the judgments were made within the city. There were 30 of them that were called Areopagites. They were, at that time, the primary ministers of justice in the city of Athens. This is where they brought him. 
It's where all of the philosophers would come and communicate the new ideas. They loved new ideas. And we'll see that that's the case as we read further. They wanted to know what this new doctrine is that he's speaking. Verse 20 says, For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. I would like us to think about that phrase for a moment. People want to hear some new thing. When I consider many in the church today who have perhaps expressed their love for Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who have studied His Word on a regular basis, who have memorized some scriptures, or many scriptures perhaps, who have expressed their love for God and the people of God and have done wonderful things in the churches. Why are they seeking something new? Because that which they're so familiar with is somehow no longer relevant. It's stale to them. So they need to find some new refreshing thing that excites their hearts. They need to explore some new avenue of understanding. My friends, that is Epicurean and Stoic philosophy. You don't need anything new. You've got everything you need right here in this book. Why go to other sources to find out some new truth, some new wonderful thing that you can latch on to and say, oh, I now know something that I've never known before and it's so wonderful. I've got to share it with everybody else. All you have to share with people is the truth of God's Word. Let that be enough. And don't go following after some ministry that says, I've got a new thing for you to hear. It's causing people to turn away from God being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, that is something that the Word of God tells us we must avoid. We need discernment, people. We need to know what is truth and stand on that truth. And the only way that we can indeed know the truth is by knowing what God's Word says. So please, don't go after those websites that tell you, hey, this isn't what Jesus said. This is what He really meant when He said this. Don't go there. Be a Berean. Have discernment. Don't listen to those audio messages that try to tell you that the Word of God can be interpreted in this way instead of in that way if that way is the right way. And you know from reading the Word of God if you are truly a Berean what is the right way. And the right way is Jesus. If there are teachings out there that you are listening to that don't focus on Jesus Christ but focus on something else, then you're going down a path that may not lead you to the right place. You need to be careful. These are the last days and the angel of death is out there wanting to take advantage of every mind and fill it with garbage. And he does it through the Internet. He does it through television, radio, books, whatever media he can make use of, he will. And it's a dangerous ground for us to be on when we start going down those paths because it's not where God wants us to be.
So that's just a warning from the Word of God. Just like the Epicureans and the Stoics who wanted to hear some new things. Be careful, my friends. Hello, church. Are you listening? Verse 22 then says, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Now, some of your translations may say superstitious. It's better translated religious. In that sense, they were religious. But being religious doesn't make you right. And they certainly were not right. They were worshipping all kinds of gods in Greece. They had many, many gods. And Paul addresses that. He says in verse 23, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. And then he begins this wonderful teaching, this very, very important message that the Epicureans and Stoics needed to hear. They wanted to know what it was that he was telling the people in Athens. Now he comes to them and he approaches them, I believe, in a way that they could understand and they could receive because of their intellectual status. They would not totally reject what he would be saying in this passage that we'll be looking at because he was addressing things that they agreed on. Take note of the very first thing he says in verse 24. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now the Stoics believed in a God. The Epicureans thought that God was so far away from everything that it was insignificant even to think about God. That's why their philosophy was, let us eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. But they realized, apparently, somewhere in their understanding, there was room for an acceptance of a creative being. How did that happen? Why were they at least cognizant of the fact that there might be a God? It's because God revealed himself even to them. Psalm 19 says it very, very well. Psalm 19, verse 1, begins with these words, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, no language, where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth or the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like the, a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from the end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The psalmist here is saying that God has revealed himself in nature. And there is no reason that anybody could observe the things that you are able to see with your eyes and feel with your hands and, and smell and touch. All of the things that the senses arouse you to this fact, there must be a creator. 
If you don't believe that there's a creator, then you've stifled what you should already have had in your heart and your conscience should have been and was, I believe, aware of at least once in your life that there is a God and He created all this. Paul the Apostle agrees so wonderfully well with that particular statement that he writes in the book of Romans these words in chapter 1, beginning with verse 20, with regard to the creation. Listen carefully. He says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible, he's speaking of God, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. Clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. He's talking about those who have rejected that fact that there is a God. It is so very clear that the writer of the book of Psalms in Psalm 19 and Romans in chapter 1 of the book of Romans are declaring to all, there is a God and He has revealed Himself through nature and you are without an excuse if you do not believe so. If you are an evolutionist, it's a theory. It was presented as a theory, but now it's held as truth. Why? Because a godless society doesn't want the people to know that there is a God. So they give another option. And people have swallowed that lie until the point now they have come to this place where they say there is no God. That is the problem of the world today. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 53, it's also in Psalm 14, reads like this. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominably. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. You see what Paul has said in Romans is reflected in the book of Psalms. There is none who does good. Why? Because they've all chosen to go their own way. There is no one, Paul says, apart from Jesus Christ, who can say, I'm good. I know I can't. The one that can say, I'm good, is God alone. God is good. Certainly. And there is none like Him. But take note of the fact that In the book of Acts, as we've read here, the city of Athens was given over to idolatry. They had temples to the multitude of gods. They have altars where they would burn offerings for those gods that they believed in. They had idols that they worshipped at. They were built by men, made with men's hands. You realize what the psalmist says in regard to idols? Well, let me tell you. Psalm 135, beginning with verse 15. It's also in Psalm 115. I found it amazing, by the way, that the two sets of psalms that I'm referring to here this morning, one with with regard to the fool that said in his heart, God put it in the Word of God twice. And what I'm going to be reading to you here, God put it into the Word of God twice. My thought on that is this. He wanted you to know. He thinks it's of great importance because he had to put it in twice. 
but two or three witnesses, the word is spoken. So here we have two or three witnesses with regard to these things that we're pointing out today. Verse 15 of Psalm 135, and again it's a repetition of Psalm 115, but it reads this way, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the works of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. What the psalmist says is so very clear. You're kind of dumb if you worship an idol, because an idol is made by hands. Isaiah puts it very, very well. He says, you know, idol worshippers will cut down a tree, and they'll take that tree, and they'll sculpt it into an idol. It's made with hands, and they'll worship that idol. But they'll take the rest of the tree that they've cut down and they'll burn it for wood in the flames for fuel for the winter. What Isaiah is saying is that idol is nothing. It does no good. And the one who makes it is like the idol itself, dumb, without any sense, without any understanding. The Word of God brings a lot of information to us with regard to idols. And I do want to mention also that Paul mentions the worship of idols in one of his letters. He says there's a spirit behind that. So the idol is nothing. But believe me, there is an enemy of our souls who is actively involved through those idols, through that idol worship, to accomplish that which he desires. And that's the destruction of men and women. He loves to deceive. He's a father of lies. He's a murderer from the beginning. We know these things to be true of Satan and his followers. And he and his followers are indeed in the spiritual realm represented through those simple but very dangerous images that people worship. They're worshiping idols. That's dumb. But it's what's behind those idols that the worship ultimately goes to. That's dangerous. But that's where the Greeks were. The Epicureans and the Stoics wanted to know. Paul has now begun to explain to them. There is a God. And He is active in the world. It tells us in verse 26. Well, let me go back to verse 25. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. There's so much there that Paul is saying in this first part of that verse 26. He says that we have been made from one blood. He's going all the way back to Adam. The word Adam comes from a root in the Hebrew language from which the word blood also comes. So there's a connection between blood and Adam. Adam, the first man, passed on 
because of his condition to all descendants, not only the physical blood that was in his veins, but also there was a spiritual element to that passing on from generation to generation that became so very much a part of what we believe in this present hour in the church of Jesus Christ. Because we believe and teach that sin came from Adam and was passed on from Adam to every generation. But not only that, again he says that because we are from that one blood, God has done something even more important and significant. That he is very much aware of who is dwelling in every nation of the world. Wherever anybody dwells, he is aware. It tells us to dwell on all the face of the earth, and he, God, has determined their pre-appointed times. You were born for such a time as this. A pre-appointed time. And not only that, but he has set the boundaries of your dwellings. Where you live is where God wanted you to live. Where you are now is where God wants you to be now. That can change. But if it does change, God is in control. And whatever He wants, He will accomplish in you. Now, you may fight that. You may just be disappointed. Well, I don't want to live in Hawaii. Well, I guess that's not a very good choice, was it? I guess some people would like to live in Hawaii. Not me. I like living in Maine. I like four seasons. I like the snow. I'm different. But I'm probably safer. Another thought. Pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. So now again, he continues in verse 27. He says, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him. You see the, the, the emphasis that Paul is using here with that word that we translate here in, in this version that I'm using is groping. It means you need to really, really want something really badly. You're groping for it. You're looking after it. You're hungry for it. That's what God's desire is for everyone. That you would have that hunger, that desire, that thirst for more of Him. He who seeks Him, the Word of God tells us, will indeed find Him. But you have to seek. And when you seek, He will be found. Because He's not far. You see, one of the theories of the Stoics was that He's far from us. Paul is saying, He's not far from you, us. He's right near. He's near enough to be able to be reached. He's not far from each one of us. So verse 28 continues and he says, For in Him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, For we are also His offspring. So he's quoting some of their poets now, relating to these Epicurean philosophers and these Stoic philosophers by quoting from their own resources. He's using a very, very greatly thought through approach to reach them. That's his goal. He wants to reach them for Jesus Christ. And he knows that their intellectual nature is to think themselves higher than everybody else. So how can anybody of lower state be able to convince somebody of great intellectual abilities be able to convince that intellectual person that they're wrong? The only way is to use 
their own words. And that's what Paul is doing. This is a great message. I don't understand why so many theologians say Paul made a mistake in preaching this way to the men in Athens and women in Athens. He didn't neglect the preaching of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. That's, remember, what he had said to us as Luke wrote these very words. He preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now he's facing a different kind of challenge to try to reach this intellectual society who thinks themselves to be so much better than everybody else. So he says, therefore, in verse 29, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and men's devising. Those idols that you've built, that's not got anything to do with God. Truly, he says in verse 30, these times of ignorance, God overlooked. God was patient. God knew that that was going to be happening. That's what God was expecting. It's part of God's plan that all of those understandings or misunderstandings about who God is would become so prevalent around the world. It didn't completely confuse our God. You realize that God is never sitting back on His throne saying, Oh, I didn't think of that. He knows everything. He knows all. But He overlooked that ignorance until the right time. He says, those times of ignorance God did overlook. But now, now, in this present age. Now. Why? Now, because Jesus is raised from the dead now. Now, He commands all men everywhere to do what? To think twice about what you believe? Certainly, yes. But He says something much more deep than rethinking what you believe. He says, now, God commands. That's a very, very strong Word, is it not? He doesn't say God suggests this. He says God commands this. Commands all men everywhere, not just Greeks in Athens, but all people in Searsport, Maine, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, in Maui, in Los Angeles, in Chicago, in New York, everywhere in Moscow, in Pyongyang. Men everywhere needed to understand this is God's command to us. Repent. What does that mean? It means turn 180 degrees from the direction that you're going and going now instead in the opposite direction. It means whatever you have been believing, whatever you have been following is wrong and you've got to turn from it as quickly as you can and go the opposite direction, away from serving idols, which that is all that that would be, to serving the one and only living true God. That is the goal of the church, to proclaim this truth, that God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross, raised Him from the dead to confirm that that was all that was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And that having been finished, the work of Christ on the cross was ratified by God by His raising Him up from the dead on the third day. 
This is what Paul is telling the Epicureans and the Stoics and you and I as well in this room here today. He raised him from the dead. He appointed it, verse 31, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He's speaking now of Jesus, the man Jesus, the one who went to the cross. But he's not just a man. He's God. And he has given assurance of this to all people by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. So again, God raised Christ for a reason. Raised him from the dead so that all people everywhere, if they have heard about the resurrection of Christ, there is no way to dispute the fact that God approved of it and because of his approve of approval of what Christ has accomplished and the raising of Christ from the dead, there is no excuse that any man or woman has. You either believe or you reject. And it tells us here that this one, Jesus Christ, who he will name momentarily, Jesus Christ is the judge of all mankind. Now what the Bible tells us very clearly, there is a judgment that is coming. And it tells us very clearly also that every knee shall bow. Every knee. I do it willingly. I bow the knee to Jesus Christ because I know Him as my Lord and Savior. But every knee, whether you believe it now or not, if you go to your grave not believing it, you will still stand before Him one day in that judgment and you will kneel before Him and acknowledge that He is Lord. That's what the Word of God says. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's ordained these things. He's given assurance of this by the raising of Jesus from the dead. And verse 32 continues. Paul is getting very, very excitable. I should think so. But he's concerned. He's concerned for these men and women at the Areopagus who should be able to understand the simple truth that he is proclaiming here. But he says in verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Yeah, right. Raised from the dead. Come on. What's the matter with you? That's impossible. That doesn't happen. Never has happened, has it? Has it? Do you believe that it has? You can go to Jerusalem and you can take a tour of various sites where it is purported that Jesus Christ walked or ministered. You can go to the site that's purported to be the place of his tomb. You can go into that chamber and see that there's no body there. Is that proof enough? Maybe not. Many believers reverence that place. I don't even think it's the right location for the actual tomb of Jesus, but it's a place where they can bring the tour groups and, you know, take advantage of the money that flows from all of the tourists. I like rather to go back to the Word of God, where Paul tells us that at one time, over 500 souls saw him in his resurrected state. That's pretty good evidence. And he said, by the way, as he wrote that, that many of those 500 were still alive. They could check it out. I, I like to go back to Mary 
at the tomb when she saw Jesus, thinking him to be the gardener, and she was crying. And it wasn't until Jesus said, Mary, Mary, that she turned and recognized it was Jesus, and she fell at his feet. And she wept at his feet, and Jesus had to say, Don't keep holding on to me. I've not yet ascended to my Father. I like to go back to Thomas, when at first he did not believe, like so many other people around him. He wasn't there when he appeared, when Jesus appeared to the other disciples. And when they told Thomas, Jesus is alive, he appeared to us all, Thomas said, I won't believe that until I see the wounds in his hand and the side wound. Then Jesus came back to visit the disciples again the following Sunday. Thomas was there. And Jesus picked Thomas out of the group and said, Thomas, see, it's me. Touch me. Know that I am truly alive. Thomas fell to his feet and on his knees cried out, My Lord and my God. Thomas believed because he was there. He saw it. And so many others. James, Jesus' half-brother. Paul himself on the road to Damascus. How much more evidence do we need? Circumstantial evidence? In a court of law, all the evidence that you have in the Word of God far far exceeds the expectation of any court anywhere. Well, what about the swoon theory? (laughs) Do you really think that Jesus could have suffered all of that on the cross and faked his death when a Roman soldier thrust his sword into his side and confirmed that he was indeed dead? Do you really think that after they took him down from the cross, he was somehow revived in a cold tomb and then was able on his own to roll that stone away? Give me a break. What about his disciples took him? Yeah, that's it. That's the explanation. His disciples took his body. They were fearful. And the Word of God says it so very, very clearly. They were in hiding. They thought they were next. There was no plan on their behalf that they would go anywhere near that tomb. The only ones who were willing to go near that tomb were the women. The men stayed back because of fear. There's no way that they could have gotten by those Roman guards who were appointed to watch. Typically, 16 Roman guards split up in groups. For every four hours, they would switch around so that nobody would be accused of neglecting their responsibility in the guard that they were given at the cost of death. They didn't fall asleep. And besides, the Word of God says that there was a great earthquake and an angel appeared. And the stone was rolled away, not because Jesus needed the angel to move the stone away. It was strictly and only because God wanted us to be able to look in and see that it is indeed empty. And the first ones to see that that were the case were the women. And then Peter and John came and saw that it was so. People 
The resurrection happened. Paul is saying that he was raised from the dead. And there were some that were listening to him who were thinking, this guy's nuts. There are still some today who think that about the story of Christ's resurrection. They're like the Epicureans and the Stoics. They will not receive, they will not believe, because in doing so, it forces them to come to grips with what God has said. You're a sinner, and you need to get right with God. And the only way to get right with God is to accept what God has done through His own Son. The plan that was the plan of God from the very foundation of time fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And the Word of God makes it so very clear. You've got to go the way that God chooses. Forget going your way. That's what repentance means, remember. You're going the wrong way. You need to go His way. And His way is the way of the cross. His way is the way to Calvary. His way is a way to salvation that through Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, you can have life eternal and forgiveness of all your sins. Matt said this morning, one of the great truths of the Word of God, that God is willing to cast all your sins as far as the east is from the west. He'll bury them in the sea of forgetfulness. He will not charge you for that sin of rejecting Christ unless you continue to reject Christ. And when you take your last breath, still having rejected that offer of salvation, you're judged condemned. He doesn't want that. He wants you to accept His free offer. A gift. You take a gift. You look at it. Beautiful wrapping. Oh, pretty bow. Oh, it's for me. I'll open that tomorrow and set it on the shelf. The next day you get up and you get dressed and ready for work and you walk by that little gift and you take it and you look at it and you say, Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Well, I've got to go to work, so I'm going to take care of it later when I can come back. So you go off and do your thing. You come back home and you eat your dinner, and then you come across that package. Listen, if you keep on putting it on the shelf, it will never get opened. What's a gift for? It's to be opened. And when you open it, you get to experience, enjoy the wonderful gift that has been given to you. If you leave it wrapped up in pretty wrapping paper with a pretty bow, it does you no good. I'll finish with the rest of the story. They mocked. And some did say, we'll hear you again in this matter. I'm not sure if they ever did. They're ones like I was just describing who put the gift on the shelf. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. However, the chapter ends with at least some good news. Verse 34 says, However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite. He's one of the 30 judges of the Areopagus. He believed. He received. And also a woman named Damaris and others with them. Now, we're not sure about Damaris, whatever happened to her. She's a believer but we're not told anything more about her in the Word of God, nor are we told anything more about 
of this man Dionysius in the Word of God. However, around 325 or so B.C., a man named Eusebius wrote a great deal of information about the early church. And he wrote about Dionysius, the bishop or elder of the city of Athens. He's mentioned specifically as a man who became a leader in the church of Jesus Christ at Athens. Was Paul successful in Athens? Some would argue no. I'm convinced that Paul was led by the Spirit of God to say exactly what he said in Athens. And it's not Paul's responsibility that only a few came to Christ. The responsibility doesn't lie with the preacher. It doesn't lie with the person who is relating their own salvation to their friends and neighbors and family. The responsibility of bringing anyone to God is God Himself. It's by the power of His Holy Spirit that He tells us He draws all men unto Himself. So I'm asking you, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, do you want to? The Spirit of God is wanting you to, and He wants to draw you close to Him. He wants to introduce you to Jesus and the salvation that is only available through Him. He wants to give that salvation freely. He wants to give it as a gift. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, that it's by grace through faith that you are saved. It's not of yourself, lest any man should boast. It's a gift of God. Will you receive that gift today? Will you come to grips with the fact that just like the Epicureans and the Stoics, you've lived your life with God so far away in your mind's eye, but He's near. He's near. He's here in this place. He wants to communicate to you, to all of us, His great love for us. And His desire is that none should perish, but that all should come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Are you one of those who has not yet decided that it's something you're interested in, that something you think you need? If that's the case, turn from that which you have been walking toward, that way that you have chosen. It's the wrong way. Oh, it's a wide road, but it leads to destruction, friends. You turn around and you go down the path that has been chosen for you by God because He wants you to take that path. And the Word of God tells you so very clearly, He lights that path for you. Oh, the Lord goes before you if you are His and you are able then to walk in that safety that is yours, that safety net that He provides to keep you from all danger, from all harm. Oh, it's not that you're not going to have trouble in this life. You will. All of us will. It rains on the just and the unjust. However, when you feel overwhelmed by all the trouble that comes upon you, you can have a way of knowing that regardless of what happens, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You can know because He's leading the way that you will not stumble or fall. You can know because not only does He go before you, He walks with you by your side. I've mentioned these things before. I hope you understand. I apply it every day in my prayer time. Lord, go before me because I need you to light the way. Walk beside me because I want that fellowship with you. Go behind me because I know the enemy can sneak up behind me. I want you to be my rear guard. 
Keep me on that solid rock that you've placed me upon when I came to know you as my Lord and Savior. I have been put upon a rock. He took me out of the miry clay and He put me on that solid rock and there I stand. But He also covers me in the shadow of His wings. Oh, people of God, it doesn't get better than this. Everything that happens in the world completely, entirely, insignificant because God's love is real. He wants you to know that love. 